we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, the podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to tectonic geologist Alan Collins. Alan is a professor at the University of Adelaide who's interested in the deep earth evolution of our planet and its effects on our atmosphere, hydrosphere and biosphere. On this episode, we will talk all things rocks, our planet's history, volcanoes and so-called supermountains. And it's an absolute pleasure to be talking to Alan today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Alan. Hello. Thanks for taking the time. And I'm just going to shoot straight away. When, when I'm out for a hike and I look at a rock along the way, I'm thinking, oh, what a beautiful form or what a beautiful color. You as a geologist naturally can probably point out 10 amazing things on the spot about that very same rock. Let's try to start out with a basic question here. Professor Collins, what are rocks and where do they come from? Well, that's a very good question. Rocks, they're, they're, they're little capsules of information. Um, you're quite right, of course. I, I, I go walking with my relatives and, and they, they'll tell me this is a beautiful landscape or whatever. And all I can see are, 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 are completely different sort of pictures. Um, but those, those pictures that you can build up, they're, they're made from these rocks, and these rocks are capsules of information. They're made of elements combined into minerals, and within them they preserve the history of pretty much everything that's happened to those elements since they got put in that rock. Um, we've just got to work out how to, uh, how to investigate and interrogate them and work out what, what they're saying. When we go to school, we have these basic ideas that are taught to us, no matter where you go to school. And uh, for example... Basic idea of tectonic plates floating on magma. That's what we all learned at school. But I feel the deeper impact of it all, and especially on life in general, gets completely lost for the average citizen. What you obviously you're obviously fascinated by this because that's you know that's the field that you completely immersed yourself in over over your life. Um, what makes plate tectonics so important for life on Earth? Yes, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? We, I mean, we're the only planet in the solar system that has plate tectonics, and that's bits of the crust moving relative to each other, creating mountains, creating ocean basins, and changing with time. Um, why is it so important for life on Earth? Well, this, this sort of surface of the Earth that plate tectonics affects, it, it, it's sort of like, I mean, I must admit, I think of it a bit like lungs. I think of it as an interface. I think of it as an interface from this reservoir of all these different elements that we need and life on earth needs that are all reside in the, deep in the earth, but we need them on the surface of the earth and they get to the surface of the earth by plate tectonics. They get to the surface of the earth by plates, bits of continents smashing into each other, creating mountains. Those mountains eroding away and all the elements that get eroded with the, in those mountains get washed down by rivers into the sea. They then come available for life. So things like phosphorus, which is in our DNA, 
that's found in rocks. You've got to get it from those rocks into somewhere where the life can use it. So that's what that's one of the really significant things about plate tectonics. It makes us different from other places. And that is something I wasn't aware of. That that's something that is very unique about our planet compared to other planets. And and I just want I'm I'm just wondering how do we know this? I mean, outside of our solar system, there most likely will be another planet like ours. But even yeah. within our solar system. Um, how do we know that that our planet is the only one that works like that, like that, or is structured like that? Well, some of it is just from actually observing it. So we, you know, we we have had quite a few years now of looking at planets in quite a lot of detail and being able to try and see um, how they work, how the heat comes out of planets. That's really what plate tectonics is. It's the way our planet loses heat from the deep planet out into space. All planets lose heat, and they're all hotter in the center than they are on the surface. Many planets lose them just by big sort of carbuncle volcanoes, big, vol big volcanic eruptions uh, in one place. We do that, of course, but we also do it by moving plates, by moving those plates around, just like sort of the scum on the earth, on, on the surface of a boiling pot. Um, it's just like that, really. That's, that's sort of how plate tectonics can be envisaged. It's, it's sort of how we lose heat on this planet. What technical advancements over the past decades helped you the most in understanding our planet's history and explaining some of the secrets of our world? Is it AI technology, computer systems, uh, satellite imagery? What, what yeah. kind of advancements? Well, certainly computer systems, and that's one of the big ways, is actually just the, 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 the processing power to be able to integrate a lot of data from a lot of different sort of streams from be it chem small chemical differences in different minerals to ages to even just the nature of rocks and 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 the the minerality of rocks and trying to integrate those together so certainly in terms of processing power and the software that's being developed to try and um, manipulate that and 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 use that to illustrate sort of feedbacks between all these different branches of the science that that's one big area and that's that's changed things dramatically it's allowed us to create models that we can test and we can then change parameters slightly and just test them and keep on iteratively changing them so we can get something to model to the data that we see in the world so that's what i mean by data driven um earth scientists i'm actually interested in in actually reproducing what we see rather than doing just 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 thought experiments about what might happen which is sort of i guess hypothesis driven i'm a i'm a bit more going out there and seeing what we can find and looking for the the chemical evidence and for the rock and the mineralogical evidence and and collecting that as data and then trying to fit the to test hypotheses around those data so that's sort of what i mean rather than just the i guess the the coming up with the hypothesis side of things so that's that's one thing but there's also there's been huge advances in just technical instrumentation the way we can measure extremely small chemical changes mass changes isotopic changes and one of the main ways i use this is by dating rocks and dating minerals so we all know about radioactivity we all know things like uranium are radioactive Well, a lot of a lot of minerals, a lot of rock substances have very small amounts of radioactive elements in them. My favorite uh, mineral is zircon, which is zirconium silicate. It's found in sand. You go to the beach, and one percent of a beach sand is usually made out of zircon. It has about 200 parts per million uranium in it. Absolutely wow. harmless. Oh wow! Nothing. <laughs> 200 parts per million isn't very much. 
but but it has about that and it means we can date those minerals and the oldest thing we've dated on this planet it's formed on this planet is in in west australia it's a place called the jack hills and that is a zircon crystal in an old sandstone old beach sand. it's actually an old probably an old river sand um there that's the oldest thing we've ever dated now that doesn't mean there aren't older things it's just we can't necessarily date them <laughs> um but yes so we've got a lot of new technology about trying to investigate other different radioactive systems like lutetium decays to a element to a mineral to an element called hafnium samarium decays to an element called neodymium very very rare elements very very small amounts of material so we need extreme precision to date to use these and, and that's what's changed quite a lot in the last five to ten years why is it important that it's uh, radioactive material to to really um, find out uh, the age of you know let's say like sand like what how yeah. how does this work it's a clock that's that's all it is so it's an absolute what we call a geochronometer a way of yeah a geological clock um so of course the radioactive parents so uranium in the case of um of that element decays to an isotope of lead over a, a known half-life yeah the amount of time it takes for half of it to change from one thing to the other the parent to the daughter so as long as we know what that half-life is and some systems we're not that we haven't got that super precise yet but if we do know what that half-life is we can measure the parent um, isotope of the ele parent element in that material and we can measure the daughter we know how long it must have taken from one to change to the other we've got a time now there's a whole world about well what does that time that age that yeah. created what does it mean does it mean the time that that mineral formed often it does but often things get reset because uh, that mineral might heat up and you might lose a lot of that isotope the, pet, the daughter isotope it diffuses out or the mineral recrystallizes into something else and the clocks get reset so there's an awful lot of work been going on again in the last 10 20 years and very much right now as well in trying to think about much get much better interpretations of what these ages mean so they so it goes back to what we were talking about right at the start this information is all in those rocks and we're just learning how to really interrogate it and to really understand it. And by understanding it better and by obtaining more accurate and more, more data, um, it helps you and your team to come up, you know, with, uh, with fascinating models. And one that you did um, with the tectonics and earth systems research team, which you lead is uh, this really great time-lapse video. I'm going to put it into the show notes so that everyone can have a quick look. And it's basically you and your team took the last billion, one billion years of our planet and smushed it together in a 40 second long time-lapse video. And it's fascinating. And obviously you being uh, based in Adelaide, I love that bit as well, but in particular that bit that you marked Adelaide with a little dot and you can see it wandering around and all over this, all over the globe. And at one point in time, Adelaide was literally the center <laughs> of, uh, of our world. What can um, I say? It, it's really, really <laughs> fascinating. But what I thought about when I watched that is it's a really powerful animation. And um, it just brings to mind that the 50,000 years that humans walk on this planet are basically a speck in time in the timeline of this four and a half billion year old planet. And um, in what way does working in your field, mm. geologist, relate to reacting to events that are happening right now? So what does it do to your personal perception of time in general? 
Yeah, no, that is a very good question. Um, I'll just say about that that animation. So yes, I, look, I, I'm very proud of that animation, but it was led by a, a person called Andrew Murdith, who did his PhD at University of Sydney. So we were very much collaborating with the University of Sydney. Now you can't put Sydney on that that animation because the the rocks that form underneath most of the eastern part of New South Wales and pretty much all of Victoria um, actually didn't form weren't formed a billion years ago. So um, I couldn't put Sydney, uh, would, would I, why would I want to put Sydney on there? I don't know, but but so you can with Adelaide because we're right on, in Adelaide, we're right on the edge of the old bit of Australia. So that was one reason for putting Adelaide. Very diplomatic. I do tell us our, our students here based in Adelaide, those nasty Eastern states haven't formed, so we don't have to worry about them. <laughs> Um, but yes, um, yes. So that was one of the reasons um, for doing that, and and that that is the first time anyone, any group has actually tried to to do a proper reconstruction of what where things might have been on the Earth back into deep time, if you like, back into the, the hundreds and hundreds of millions of year time. And there's there's good reasons why that's difficult. Um, and and uh, you know, I'll also say that model that reconstruction is definitely wrong. It's a lot better than anyone's done so far before I'll humbly yeah. say but it's definitely wrong there's definitely an awful lot of things that that can change and we're working a lot on trying to improve that and take it back a little bit older as well you asked about how on earth this sort of relates to what's what what what's happening right now and you know what's happening to to our rapidly evolving and your perception of time yeah perception of yeah. time because yes those those big times we talk about um you know the earth if you if you divide the earth into ninths uh, which is a basically 500 million year old slices it's only really the last ninth of earth history the last 500 million years half a billion years it's a huge amount of time but that last bit that we know a lot about i'd say before that we just don't we haven't really been had the tools to really investigate those four billion years of those other eighth eight ninths of earth history um, until until quite recently, those things we were talking about, those techniques and technologies that we were talking about earlier. Um, so to try and put your mind into how these things work, you know, you see these constants dancing around in that animation. They're moving incredibly slowly. They're moving at the rate your fingernail moves. It grows. That's pretty much how plates move, that sort of speed, the same rate as your fingernails grow. But you've got vast amount of time. So think big things happen, big changes happen. It's incredibly difficult to think about these times, really. Honestly, I don't think any human is can really comprehend these millions of years, let alone hundreds of millions of years and billions of years. Um, so it, you do get into a, a, after trying to deal with this as a geologist, you do get into a sort of a thing, well, you know, the earth has been around for ages. It does all these things. Its climate has been much more extreme than it's gonna be in the next couple of hundred years, much hotter, much colder. Um, the planet doesn't care, right? The planet can deal with it. It'll deal with it. And life will deal with it. It's just, you know, not necessarily the life we care about, humans and, and cuddly creatures and things like that. However, one of the big things I find really exciting about looking at deep time is there are periods in Earth history where things did change really quickly, where evolution happened incredibly fast and also where the climate changed incredibly fast, even arguably faster than what's happening right now so we now that, of course they're nothing to do with humans doing that back then 400 500 a billion years ago but we can look at how the earth responds when the temperature goes up because of huge volcanic eruption and we can try and see how 
you know, this amazing machine that is our planet, how it manages to deal with it. And we can get insights from that about what we might be facing in the next 50 years, 100 years, what might happen to coral reefs, what might happen to, to, to ocean chemistries and sea level through time. So that's where there, there are real direct relations because we, we have the evidence there. We just need to know how to read it. We, we know we, we, we have the experiments being done. The planet has it all recorded in its geology. We just need to, again, get clever at how to read it. And there are also more and more things coming out or more and more findings. Uh, for example, um, the so-called super mountains. That is fascinating. I I'd never heard about this before. And uh, it's, it's, I think 2006, that's when the study came out. This claim of the emergence and effects of so-called super mountains. We're talking about mountain ranges with the height of the Himalayas, but three to four times longer that formed when plates smashed into one another and yeah. formed super continents. It's, I think one and a half, two billion years ago. What exactly do we know about this? And how did the team that worked on it come to this claim? Um, and also following, you know, the theory, what effect did those mountain ranges have on the evolution of life, which you just mentioned before? Yeah, well, so this is this is fascinating study that's been been coming out over the last couple of decades, as you say, um, really led by a group in, in uh, ANU by, by Ian Campbell in, in, in Canberra. But again, that, that they, they have been pointing out that there are times in Earth history, yeah, where we seem to have really large mountain ranges. Now, personally, I would argue today that the Himalaya is one of these super mountain chains, if you like, these huge extensive track chains that hasn't been there forever. The Himalaya has only really been there as a vast mountain range um, for the last 20 million years, blink of the eye. Um, and before that, we actually know, well, we're pretty sure that for the sort of the 500 million years before the Himalaya, that we actually didn't have any mountain ranges of the same extent, the same elevation and the same lateral extent as the Himalaya. And we, and we know that weirdly because of some isotopic changes within seawater. And of course we don't see it in seawater because we haven't got seawater from 200 million years ago, but we do have rocks that formed in seawater and actually preserve in their chemistry, the chemistry of the seawater they were in equilibrium with. And there are some isotopes of, of an element called strontium that actually help us work out when we're getting periods of large amounts of erosion of old rocks. And that's really what mountains are. They're bringing old rocks, from, as I say, from deeper in the earth up to the surface, and they're being uh, allowing them to be eroded dramatically into the sea. Now, if you take this, this esoteric element, strontium, and you look at a couple of isotopes and you plot it over time, and you just draw a line of how much, how much it changes over time, it rises dramatically at around about one uh, 1800 million years ago 1.8 billion years ago and then it sort of plateaus a bit and doesn't really do much and then at around about 600 million years ago it takes another incredible rise and then for the last 500 million years again it sort of wiggles around a bit plateaus and just sort of goes to sort of horizontal and then the last 50 million years it's taken another hike and that's one of these sort of smoking guns if you like these chemical proxies, we call them, but they're, yeah. they're, they're chemical changes that are telling us, we think we know what they're telling us about something else. In this case, the formation of mountains. Now what's super, these super mountains, huge mountains. Now, as you say, they are to do with 
collision of continents. And again, what's really cool is that sort of periodicity, if you like, going from uh, uh, 1800 million years ago, then at about 600 million years ago and about today, that sort of, that seems to fit in with when times where we think most of the continents were coming together and colliding with each other. The Himalaya is there because India smashed into Asia. With us, Australia, we are moving north rapidly. We're the next one. We will smash into, we'll, we'll sideswipe Asia. We are going to be next to China, whether we like it or not. We are busy moving north and we're going to sideswipe Asia. Um, what happens with Americas is a little bit unknown at the moment. There's two possible scenarios that people play with. That it will come back and hit either hit Asia or the Atlantic will close and hit Africa. And we'll get what we call a supercontinent. <laughs> we like these terms, super something. And these supercontinents are times in Earth history where we think most of the continents were together. We had one in the past, this thing called Pangaea, and it was and Gondwana was a big part of Pangaea, Pangaea being Greek for all Earth. Um, and that was formed by these mountains that happened around about 600, 500 million years ago. That's how they sort of started. Um, as I say, with the Himalaya, we're now seeing the mountains as occurring as we're forming the next one, the next supercontinent. And back at 1800 million years ago, there was another supercontinent formed that goes by two names at the moment, Nuna and or Columbia, depending on which one you prefer. <laughs> but again, these, 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 this pulse of the planet, in some ways, this is one of the most fundamental pulses of the planet, this form, continent smashing into each other and then being ripped apart and then being then smashing into each other somewhere else and then being ripped apart. This sort of five, six, seven hundred million year old pulse, again, is something that has been around in an, in an idea form since the 1980s, but it, only in the last 15, 20 years has it really become becoming crystallized. And we're getting the data to really be able to show it and to map them, to, to actually show where they were, not just that they existed, but where and when they were. That's fascinating. And oh, I have to say, it's another example also how hard it is to comprehend really the, the full history of our planet and not just the history, history of humankind. Because again, you know, it's a very, and again, going back to the, to the animation that, that we talked about, it's a, it's a very fluent, like a fluid state, you know, it's, yeah. everything's moving, everything is changing. But if you would ask someone, you know, is a rock, a rock solid, you know, that saying it's rock solid. <laughs> it's always been there. It will always be there. And then you zoom out a little bit, you know, and, and, and look onto the broader timeline and you realize, no, it will not always, no, be no, there. everything is changing, but just on a different scale. And, um, I think it's so hard for us to comprehend that. It is. Um, some of the amazing images that have been coming out from the Tonga eruption. I was just about to ask you. About uh, yes, yes. But that, to me, that's one of the one of the most profound images I've seen recently. Is again, you may well have seen it. It's done the rounds on on various social media things about the the the, the way the wave that went around the atmosphere from it that went right around the planet. You could actually see it. Yeah. Um, and to me, that was that was a real profound example about how something that is inherently about the deep earth, that volcano, that volcano is sitting under sitting on top of a subduction zone, which is where one plate is going is, is approaching the other one and going down underneath it. It's they happen all the time, these sort of volcanoes. That was a big one, but they happen all the time geologically. Um, but the profound link with what's going on in the atmosphere and what's going on on the surface from that deep earth process. Um, yeah, I found it. I found it really amazing. Um, 
as I say, it's not unusual that Tonga eruption. Um, Pinatubo was the biggest eruption of the 20th century in, in the Philippines, in, the, in a, the last part of the 20th century. Another vast eruption in a very similar sort of tectonic setting in a subduction zone. Um, Krakatoa, again, people have heard of this in the 19th century. Again, very huge eruption, very similar tectonic setting. One plate, in fact, Australian plate there going down underneath the Asian plate. Someone needs to be blamed for that. That's okay. <laughs> yes, that's right. Sorry, it was our plate. Um, <laughs> Ta- yeah, New Zealand, New Zealand has them all, you know. They, they... I think it's a good point that they're talking about the Hunga Tonga um, um, yeah. eruption because these things happen, again, these things happen all the time. You know, it's a, it's a totally usual thing happening, but they don't happen every month or every week. So it's, it's interesting, you know, once something like that happens, um, it puts... It puts that on, on every newspaper, on, on, on the front page of every newspaper, and also yeah, puts yeah. geology in the spotlight. And we, all of us get interested all of a sudden again, like, oh, my God, how can this happen? What's, what are the reasons? And I mean, this one was fascinating because also how well it was documented and, you know, all the things that came with it, the, the, the sonic boom, the images from space. I mean, that's amazing stuff. And we have seen this in the past as well with the Aya Fjella Jökur in, uh, in, in Iceland, all of yes, the air yes. travel in Europe. I'm glad you can pronounce it. Yep. <laughs> um, but all the air travel was grounded. And, we're like, and it was some, again, that, that it impacted our lives. And we realized, what do you mean we can't fly? It's not safe to fly. You know, like it's something around these events where we realize, you know, yes, this happens all the time, but it, um, it just shows that what happens on the surface of our planet is just a fraction of the whole picture and how much nature has the upper hand in the, in the end. Like you said, you know, we might not be around, but the planet will be fine. Like it would just evolve and change. I imagine when something like this happens, your mind must switch straight away to detective mode and thinking about all the data and all the findings you can use from this eruption. I might be wrong about that, but that's how I picture it. You're sitting there, everyone's just fascinated, you're fascinated, but then you sw- straight away go to, okay, what does that mean? What new findings? Because in the mm-hmm. great scheme of things, what magnitude does an event like this have on you? Is it a big deal or is it actually just another? Oh, no, of course it's a big deal. I'm just, uh, to quote Winnie the Pooh, a bear of very little brain like everyone else. You, <laughs> we, have, we have such small memories, you know, as yeah. humans. We, yeah. have, we, we have such a small bit of time that we can, we can sort of comprehend that, yes, of course, these are fascinating, incredible, awesome in the proper term of awesome um, events. And, of course, that's why I'm interested in geology. That's why everyone gets who does geology gets interested in it because because these are the things that control our planet. They're actually the things that allow us to live, um, to allow us to exist. You know, there's some famous quote, I, you may have heard me just trying to type there. I was trying to find it. I couldn't come up with it quickly, but I'll, I'll completely trash it. But there's a famous quote that goes somewhere along the lines of that humanity exists at the behest of geology. And it sort of does because yeah, yeah. we could get wiped out and we would, you know, we could get wiped out at any time. Um, and large parts of this planet have been wiped out. Yeah. We, we see evidence, I mean, go back to New Zealand, we see evidence in New Zealand, in Taupo, the beautiful big lake in the middle of the North Island of Taupo. The eruption that happened there, which was only 2000 years ago, but there weren't any humans that the Maori hadn't, hadn't got to, to, to New Zealand then. There weren't any humans around there that we know of. The eruption that caused the Lake Taupo is much, much bigger than any we have any record of. Yeah. Um, and that's only 2,000 years ago. That's just a blink of the eye. Um, so, you know, eruptions like Tonga, huge, 
but we know that there were much bigger eruptions that have happened and will happen and, and will happen you know may happen within our lives may happen within our, our children's or our grandchildren's lives may not may happen a thousand years after that but but are going to happen in 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 the time that that we're around the humans are around anyway but I think that's also what makes it so fascinating. You know, there's evidence that there's activity. No one knows exactly when when something yeah, like that yeah. happens. So it's it's this waiting game for it, and um, and I think that's what makes it so fascinating, and that's also what makes it so exciting to witness it happening. I mean, obviously, the the devastating effects of it put set aside. Just like oh, absolutely, that's yeah. just like the fast being fascinated with um, with nature and and what it can do. But and exactly to to, to your point, if you think about Yellowstone or the Eiffel in Germany, which are like huge yeah. <laughs> volcanoes and they're still active. I mean, there are signs of activity. And if one of those should go off, I mean, that would put everything else, you know, to shame and the effects would be much, much more, you know, consequential for, for all life on earth. But um, I think that's, that's part of it. That's, you know, we at the, we at the hand of, of nature in that respect. What I find interesting when that happened on Tonga is also volcanology Volcanology. Volcanology is still a pretty young field of geology. I wasn't aware of that, but it made total sense because there were some some stories, obviously, of big eruptions hundreds of years ago, but it's really not that well documented because, you know, there are not that many eruptions that happened over the past decades where we had all these tools and, you know, to measure measure things and yeah, yeah. And, um, and collect all the all the data. So I wasn't aware of that. It's a pretty young field, isn't it? Well, this this will surprise you but geology is a, a pretty when you're pretty young feel it's one of the things that makes me so excited about it when you think about biology and you know what's i guess what's the founding scientific theory in biology evolution will be one of the big ones right yeah. it's old right that's a couple of hundred years old the, the the founding sort of theory that turned geology from being really quite a descriptive thing to actually a science yeah. where you could make predictions and you could test hypotheses was the theory of plate tectonics. Well, that was only the late 1960s, early 1970s. We're still really going through the plate tectonic revolution, scientific revolution now, the paradigm shifting now. Um, so, you know, geology is incredibly new as a, as a sort of a, 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 a science, I would say, as opposed to a, a more descriptive, um, more and more of, I guess, a, a, an art-like um, endeavor. Um, and, and, and volcanology is exactly like that. The volcanoes are there, a, lot, a large part of them, are, most of them are there because of plate tectonics. Um, forecasting eruptions and forecasting earthquakes is a huge science because, of course, as you say, they, they cause devastation. They, they, they change people's lives. They kill people. Um, it is incredibly important that we try and learn better ways. We'll probably never be able to predict, as in like next Tuesday at 3 p.m. it's going to happen. But yeah. a lot of people are getting, you know, we are getting much better. Not myself, it's not my field, but, but my um, colleagues are getting much better at forecasting you know, and making probabilities about when and where um, we, you might expect um, earthquakes and volcanoes to happen, just like the weather, just how we forecast the weather. We don't say it's exactly definitely going to rain at 3 p.m. right at this spot. We forecast it. We give it a probability. And it's that sort of concept that... that that is driving people to again have use use the knowledge we're gaining from studying the earth, the earth and the history that's tied up in the rocks to 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 make the world a better place for for us to live in. Hopefully. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it was also presented with the Honga Tonga eruption um, in predicting the tsunami that, that came with it. I mean, that was something that, that came from the from the horrendous tsunami in, in Thailand, that all That's these swing buoys and all these systems were put in place to at least have a warning system and i think from what i understand that's what um, volcanology is also working on not to be completely precise to 3 p.m it's going to happen but to read signs that might help to evacuate people in time and stuff as a geologist you must be thrilled to live and work in australia i mean we all understand <laughs> australia is old we all know it's old but what <laughs> i thought was fascinating when i read the, one of the papers um prior to this interview what I thought was fascinating is that your re research showed that as a continent, it's really not that old, you know, as we assume that <laughs> Australia is rather made up of all sorts of different things. We, we have old bits um, and, and bits of the, this, this continent we're on now were parts of other continents in the past. You know, sort of fundamentally, I suppose, um, Australia has an old bit and a new bit. So the old bit is really from where I'm sitting here in Adelaide to the west, right the way over to Perth. And, and right the way up north, there's, you can sort of draw a sort of zigzag line that goes around to Broken Hill and then up towards um, west of Victoria and then uh, west of Victoria, west of Queensland, and then comes up towards sort of Townsville. Everything west of that is old. Everything east of that is has formed within the last 500 million years. Some of it, and you get right over towards New England, relatively young, so 200 million years or so ago. You know, when dinosaurs were around, that's when the rocks that formed the basement there, the, the deepest rocks there, that's when they actually formed as a, an island in a volcanoes, just like in Tonga. So to the west of me though, we, the old bit of Australia is still made of different bit entities, three major, one, major ones that imaginatively are called the West Australian, the Northern Australian and the South Australian cratons. Craton just means an old bit of continent. And the South Australian craton for most of its, its existence was part of Antarctica, part of a large bit of Antarctica. The West Australian one, again, is made of two smaller ones that came together. Some of those have relation, relationships or, or seem to have been part of South Africa for way back billions of years ago. But the Northern, Northern Australia is a little bit younger than both of those. Northern Australia you know, formed around about 2 billion years ago to about 1.5 billion years ago. There's the, again, it is impossible to try and think about all these different sort of the, the, the antiquity here, the, the, what's going on in this this deep time. I love this phrase, deep time, because it really yes. does make you think Powerful. that you've got to delve into it. It's there's such a depth there. Um, but yeah, but but again, we we are working it out. We are working out how these these parts of what we walk around on, what their history is, and what they're related to, and how they've got together, and and, and where we will be going next. <laughs> yeah, you haven't stopped. <laughs> it's, it's exploring, right? It's it's uh, I, again. I remember as a kid, one of the things that got me really interested in geology. I used to like maps and traveling and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that really got me into geology was being pointed out. I'm going to say it was by Chris Bonington. It might not have been. It was, it was a mountaineer. I, in my my uh, that old mind, I remember it being Chris Bonington. But saying that, you know, that being asked where there's nowhere to go and explore now, um, the thing was, well, actually, there is. There's masses and geologists are the ones who are doing it. Um, I get to go all over the world, but I don't get to go to pretty places. I do get to go to pretty places, but I also spent a lot of my career in quarries in southern India that are just the local latrines trying to move between the piles of whatever yeah. to try and get to the rocks. You get to the most weird places because that's where that's where the stuff is you need to go and look at.
Um, so because of that, you have incredible experiences and you get to see things that you don't usually get to see and most scientists don't get to see. You get to travel around to, 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 to fascinating places um, because that's where the evidence, the crucial bit of evidence that tells you how one bit related to another bit. I got to discover a continent. That's one of my favorite things. I got to name an ancient continent that's a bit of Madagascar, a bit of East Africa, a bit of Arabia. Um, that's amazing. You know, who gets to do that? It's incredible. You sound like a very, very fortunate and lucky man. I am. And uh, I must say, I like talking to people who are passionate about things. <laughs> and you are certainly one of them. Your passion <laughs> for geology is very infatuating. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and talk to me. And hopefully we can uh, talk again soon. Uh, I'd love to. It's been fun. Thanks, Ben. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Professor Alan Collins. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com, or you can find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, leave us a glowing review and five stars wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening. See you next time.